You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. So we're in this series called Unwrapped, and we're unwrapping the real gifts of the Christmas season. So I was thinking about in prep for this sermon this morning, standing in line at a coffee shop. Surprise, right? Standing in line, interacting with the barista. Two guys had just left. So I was really surprised when I looked down at this new marketing tool they had, and it's this red cup holder. And I saw something green there, and I thought, okay, what little tool is this? So I'm flipping through these pieces of paper, and I'm like, that looks like the color of real money. And then I'm like, what's well, the size and shape of it, too? And just stuffed down in this cup holder were three $100 bills. So my very first thought, full transparency here, was, well, a Christmas bonus, right? 300 bucks. And then I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Quickly, I'm a, one of the pastors at Northeast. There's cameras in here somewhere. This is one of those holiday shows. What would you do? And they're filming me. I know something's going to go down. It's best behavior. So I'm looking around. I don't see anybody. But there is this guy at the end of the counter. And he looks a little suspicious, whatever that means to me. He's just standing down there waiting on his coffee. But it's a little peculiar the way he's positioned himself. So I'm talking with the barista, and I ask her about it. She has no idea. She looks up her recent customers, and no one had paid with cash. Everyone had paid with their Starbucks card or a credit card. So I give her the money. She says, probably just give it to my manager. That'll be the best deal. I'm like, I think that's a great idea. But I keep looking at this guy because I'm thinking, maybe it's his. And he's lingering. He's just standing there. So every time I look at him, he looks back at me. So I'm thinking, to not make it awkward, I frown at him. Every time I look at him, I frown. Well, that helped, right? So I'm doing that three or four times. Anyway, we end our conversation. I'm walking down to the end, and I'm like, well, just go for it. See if it was him or not. So I'm like, hey, man, I know this is weird, but just did you happen to lose any money? He pulls out his wallet and says, well, I, I don't think so. I did pay with cash. He says, wait a minute. And he's flipping through, and he's like, I've lost a lot of hundreds. And I believe the guy because of the fret he has. And he said he lost hundreds. And he keeps living through. And I said, you know how many? And he said, yeah, I've lost, I've lost three $100 bills. I'm like, well, I gave them to the barista. She gave them to the minister, uh, manager, so you're set. Minister, yeah. So I go on my way. He goes on his way. Did you get that, Monty? Yeah, it came your way? Okay. So they have this one table at the end of that counter, and it's about, you know, waist high like this. I love that table because there's a chair here, a chair here. I can sit when I want to, and I can stand when I want to. So I'm standing, and the coffee, creamer, and all that stuff's over here. I'm standing, just writing a little bit, going about my business because I totally forgot about the episode. So I feel this person, you know, this, this presence come up beside of me, and then boom, a hand slams down on the table. And kind of shakes me up for a moment. And before I recognize that it was the guy that I just gave the 300 bucks to, he's halfway gone. He's nearly at the door. And I didn't realize that he had slid his hand after slamming it on the table, slid it my way, and uncovered a $100 bill. So he's giving me this $100 bill as a token of gratitude. And I'm like, dude. And he sees me, but he's at the door and he's doing that thing where he leans into it so you don't have to push and he's leaning into it to see if I got it. And he's out the door. We make eye contact and I, I don't want to yell thanks, you know, across the store or anything like that. So I don't know what to do. So I salute him. I mean, I don't know. Is that appropriate? Is that the right thing to do? So he's leaving. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, 
good, good moment there. So whatever. But I'm thinking about that. The guy's over here doctoring up his coffee, cream and sugar to this taste. And this is his plan. It's his strategy. He's working this out in his mind. He's planning to give this to me. So when he slams it on the table and hurries off, he wants me to receive it. I know we use Christmas as an opportunity to underscore the idea of giving, and that's great. Sending sentiments of goodwill toward our family, friends, and neighbors, wonderful. But Christmas is also an opportunity for you and I to learn how to receive. 2,000 years ago, God slid his sovereign hand across the table of human history. A baby was born in Bethlehem. And God had planned that. It was his strategy. He was thinking about us. And he wants us, as well as all of human history, to learn how to receive this historical son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's one reason we are here this morning. So I hope that you use this series in this Christmas season to learn how to receive that. And this morning, as we unwrap the gift, the real gift of faith, I want us to do two things. One, I want us to work toward a working definition of faith. It's not going to be technical, a little loose language, but I think it captures the thought. One of the things I want us to do is reduce the risk of making faith just about believing a little longer or a little stronger. We want to figure out the inner workings of faith and flesh out a biblical understanding of what's occurring. So we're going to try to define it with a little casual language. And then we're going to look at a story, not a typical Christmas story, Mary or Joseph or Elizabeth, Zechariah. We're going to look at a different story from John chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn over there in preparation, John chapter 4, because this is the real, the real gifts of the Christmas season. And we want to see what circumstances come along into someone's life and begin shaping this real gift of faith. Because I'm under the opinion that faith isn't something that just occurs. It develops over time. It's nurtured. We have to lean into it. And if you will, we have to learn to receive before we can really experience this real gift of faith. So I want to start out by defining it and saying, faith, while it includes belief, it's not limited to belief. It includes, but it's not limited to belief. A case in point, John, when he's closing his gospel, he writes these final words. John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these words are written, everything that I wrote about Jesus, the stories that I've told, the references that I've made, the words that I've captured, the events, these are written that you may believe that He is the Messiah. In other words, you still have input and control over this. I've wrote these, I've collected them, and I've presented them to you. I've written them, presented them to you so that you have the opportunity to believe. So faith includes belief, but it's not limited to just basic belief. A belief can be rooted in our own unique experiences. And since we're masters at manipulating our senses... Sometimes our beliefs can be at odds with what's really going on. Or you think about it. Some of us have a religious background. 
Maybe you grew up in a church where what we do here at Northeast, when we worship, we stand and you raise your hands. You open them. Because to you, that open hand represents openness to your God in worship. But some of you may have grown up in settings where you didn't raise your hands. After the first song, everybody sat down and you stayed seated for the remainder of the service. And you wouldn't clap. You wouldn't raise your hands because it would bring attention to you instead of attention to God. Those are both beliefs. Some of you, you grew up and you know 52 times a year, that's how often you go to church. Every Sunday. It's already written, inked in on the calendar. Some of you grew up in environments where, you know, the pace of life, the rhythm, where we are this season, one to three, that's a great range. One to three Sundays a month. You know, if we're there, great, that's our goal. Some of you grew up, and I hear this language frequently. Some of you grew up with an, an appreciation of the Bible, but it's not the entire authority, and it's not as sufficient as the Holy Spirit. So there's some language that actually causes the Holy Spirit and Scripture to butt heads, as if the Holy Spirit would tell you to do something that Scripture would condemn. But it's your belief. Your belief is to rely heavily upon the Bible, or your belief is to rely heavily upon the Holy Spirit. It's dependent upon our unique experiences and how we can manipulate those. That's why basic belief isn't sufficient to define faith. Actually, a guy named Robert Mulholland, he's a great author. He says, when we define faith with basic belief, this is actually just our own perceptions, our own desires, what we're looking for from God or what we want, or maybe filtering through our needs. So we want to argue this morning that it takes belief and another ingredient called trust. Belief and trust that forges faith. And you say, what's the difference? Well, belief is that idea that I can control. I can buy into the information being presented to me. So Jesus did all these things, great. I believe he's the son of God. But it takes trust to live those out. Case in point, we've got this scripture from the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you know it as the hall of faith where the author runs down big names from the Old Testament like Abraham and Moses and all kinds of guys. And they talk about these great things that they did through faith. And then we reach near the end of that section, verse 32. He says, by faith, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. And notice the power of what happens here with faith. I don't want you to miss this because there's a huge twist at the end of these few verses. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and they escaped death by the sword. Now hold on this screen for just a moment. And that's how we typically frame faith. If I believe longer, if I believe stronger, these powerful moments will be part of my life as well. And this is one of the fragile moments for a new believer. Someone transitioning from a non-believer to a believer, not a Christ follower to a Christ follower. They start thinking, okay, if I adopt this idea of faith, if I want to start living my life by faith, then there are going to be some things that should or could or need to change. But what happens if you accept Christ as your Lord, you surrender to him and you start living this Christian journey 
and some of the things don't get better, what happens? Faith is more than basic belief. Notice this twist. Next slide. By faith, it's the same group of people. By faith, others were tortured. By faith, others were chained in prisons. By faith, some died by stoning. By faith, others were killed with the sword. That takes trust. Basic belief is something that we can control. Yeah, I, be, I, I, I kind of believe that. Yeah, I'll buy into that. Trust is where you say, yes, I'm all in. And regardless of how this plays out, whether I'm chained in prison or shutting the mouth of a lion, I trust God regardless of the circumstances. So faith is that blend of belief and trust that forges faith. So can I offer you just a loose definition? Just something easy to remember. Faith is basically following through with God. You may not understand what's occurring. It may be hard. It may be clear. Sometimes it may be easy. Sometimes you may be experiencing one of these powerful, God is involved, no doubt about it, moments. Other times maybe you feel like you are being tortured because of your struggle. Faith says, I believe who God says he is and I trust him so I will live this out regardless. Faith is following through with God. So before we go in and see how this faith is forged in John chapter four, let me ask you a question from a pastor to you. If faith was, is following through with God, what would following through with him literally practically look like in your life this evening or tomorrow or in some of your relationships where there's a little bit of rub what would follow through really look like in your life so when we come to John chapter 4 some of you know this a very famous story uh, the scene there is there's a lot of baptisms going on it kind of reminds me of Northeast currently. Have you noticed how many baptisms we've had recently? Is that amazing or what? I mean, God is stirring in people's lives. Yeah, you can clap for that. Absolutely, you can clap for that. We're all about change and transformation. That's what we believe in, a God who can transform our lives. So the setting is very similar. And first uh, service actually made a blunder. I said we had a baptism today. It's actually next week. We've got a child getting baptized, which is just phenomenal. So the setting in John chapter 4, it opens up in verse 1. There's a lot of baptisms going on. And Jesus, he's there with the Pharisees. And you know they're antagonists toward one another. So Jesus leaves this area. And some of you know John chapter 4 because of that famous verse. As Jesus was leaving, he had to go through Samaria. So he takes this detour through Samaria. And he meets this woman at a well. And in Jesus' fashion, he's able to strike up a conversation with her. And he's traveling with his disciples, but they go into town to buy some food. They're chatting, just Jesus and this woman. And it's probably a little awkward at first because Jews and Samaritans, they don't have a really good relationship, so they don't connect or converse that often. And also, a man and a woman alone at that time was not really acceptable. So it's probably a little awkward, especially when Jesus starts bringing up and laying out this lady's dirty laundry they're actually striking up a pretty good conversation kind of spiritually oriented and then Jesus says well since you know Jew Samaritan 
man, woman, why don't you go get your husband, bring him back, and we'll continue talking. And she says, well, um, actually, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. You've, you've had a few rocky relationships in the past. There's been some hangups there. And the guy you're with now, maybe he's bad news, maybe he's not, but he's not your husband either. And then she's like, wait a minute. How do you know this? But right before that, he says something and it actually introduces us to the circumstance that begins to take shape for faith to take shape in our lives. So we entered the story at John chapter 14. Right after she said, I have no husband, Jesus says, what you have said is quite true. I would have loved to have been there in that moment. In that moment, Jesus says, what you identified, what you just revealed about yourself is true. And there's some more there as well. In this moment, this lady catches a glimpse of who she really is in the mirror of the Messiah. And Jesus knows by bringing this to the surface that truth grips people. You know that as well as I do. I have someone in my life, actually, a great friend. We meet together with some regularity. I told this person not too long ago, I said, you know, uh, I'm not trying to reduce our friendship to anything, but I want you to know that one of the reasons I really benefit from meeting with you regularly is this, simply because if for no other reason, when you and I disagree on something or when you see it another way, I know that you will tell me the truth as you see it good, bad, or indifferent, however that makes me feel, I know that you will tell me the truth. And I value our friendship for that simply because I have too many people in my life that will tell me what I wanna hear and I need someone who will shoot straight with me as they see it. You've had that happen too, haven't you? Someone comes along and they actually speak truth into your life and it grips you. It's different than what other people are telling you. I bet that's what's happening with this woman. And the story goes on, verses 21 and 24. She actually tries to remove herself from this. She's like, okay, I opened up a can of worms here. Don't want to go any further with this. No more of my past, nothing like that. So she's like, hey, I see you're some kind of brilliant guy. You've got a heads up on my life. So tell me about worship. And then she goes into her past with worship. She's like, hey, my people, we worship here. Your people worship there. Is there any compatibility? Uh, won't you speak into that a little bit? And Jesus takes this idea of truth on into the conversation. So he said, hey, listen, a time is coming. So I want you to know that any differences between Jew and Gentile will diminish. Neither the Jew nor the Gentile will unroll the blueprint for worship. Actually, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Next slide. They are the kind Don't miss this language. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He's scanning the landscape of humanity, looking for people who will be open and honest before him. He seeks them in worship. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So with the Samaritans, their idea of worship, it was superstitious and selective. 
It was selective in the sense of they only honored the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, something like that. They ignored the prophets and the wisdom literature. They ignored the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They didn't bother with that stuff. They chose what they would lean into. I wonder if that happens with us. We read through God's word and we come face to face with something that speaks to us and it's truthful and it gets our attention, it grips us but you really don't want to go there right now. Every week at 9 and 1045, we have worship so that you and I can come and be open and honest before God. And maybe you've heard it said in these words, when we worship, we don't want to miss the heart of God. And that's true, we don't. But we will miss the heart of God if we approach him in worship and we, don't, we do not bring our full selves. Someone else has said that when we worship God, we, become, we come before him with openness and honesty. We bring our full selves, every part of us, and some parts are ugly, but we bring all of our being honest before God that's who he's looking for. But their worship was also superstitious. Kind of like this idea, well, I'm not superstitious, but just in case there's something there, I'll do this. Like by a show of hands, who would actually walk under a ladder? Yeah, very few of us, right? And who has that moment of, huh, when a black cat jolts in front of your car, right? A good friend of mine and I, we were at lunch late last week. We're at Frizzoli's. The guy in front of us ordered his food, wasn't quite ready yet. So they gave him this tall silver thing with a number tacked to the top. They slid it his way. He picks it up, looks at the number and says, oh, 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 no, 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 no. Kind of throws it back on the counter there and says, you got to give me another number. The number was six. So I tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, what's the problem with the number six? And he said, oh, you just do some research and you'll find out what's wrong with the number six. But he really wouldn't take it. So that's similar, similar to the superstition. Maybe there's something there. So I, I guess we'll pray before our food just in case. And maybe there's something there. So one to three in that range of church attendance, you know, every month, one to three will work just in case there's something there. And maybe we do that with a superstition as well. Um, on a side note, Mike Levan, you know, our resident mathematician, sent me a note right between services after that illustration and said, in the math world, six is one of the perfect numbers. Yeah, go figure, okay, yeah. Mike knows all about math. So they had this worship that is superstitious and selective, but Jesus said, hey, none of that's the blueprint, you're missing it. You come before God open and honest. And can I get a little real with this and maybe to the point of being a little uncomfortable because I'm a little uncomfortable with it. But I've been scanning social media lately and looking at some comments. And there's some stuff that goes down and this seems to be some kind of trend or pattern. There's something that goes down in someone's life. And then years later, it comes up and there's no forgiveness. Now, it could just be me, and if you feel that you need to contact me and chat about this, you feel free because it could just be me. But when I read through the Bible, I read verses like Paul told Timothy, the church 
is the pillar and the foundation of truth, not the culture. The church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So when you come here to 990 Starshoot, you should expect to be met with truth and how that truth is wrapped, we're gonna get to in just a moment. But you should always expect that truth will be elevated and honored when you're inside of this building. The culture says that your past defines you. So I'm reading through this slew of tweets a couple of weeks ago, and I see this bold caption, and I don't want to use any specific references because I'm not trying to throw punches at any particular person, and it's no one in here. It's larger than us. But this one tweet says, I don't care that this happened when he was 15. All caps. He needs to pay. I don't understand that language. Because the church, it's not your past that defines you. It is your faith in Jesus Christ that defines you. Your belief and your trust in him. So I read texts like 2 Corinthians where Paul tells this church in Corinth that when you make that step in the direction of Jesus Christ and you surrender to him, the old stuff is gone. And the new creation, the newness of life in your relationship with him and others is present. The text actually says you become a new creation. So whatever message you're getting outside of these walls, I want you to know that I'm praying for every single one of you. Some of you I know specifically by name. Some of you have got your faces. Some of you I haven't met yet. But I want you to know that I uplift this church so that we don't get those wires crossed. And I know there will be some mistakes and sins that are committed and they'll have lifelong consequences or residue that lingers for a lifetime. I get that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about who gets the final say is the pillar and foundation of truth. And that's why maybe confronting truth is so hard or forging faith is difficult because we're good on the basic belief. I get to control that. But when I have to add in trust, which causes me to live by these beliefs, that's a little different. Now, not to bring in uh, outside resources, but I'm doing it for the simple reason that this particular author, even though he's in the leadership or business world, he captures and reinforces what we're talking about. Jim Collins wrote a uh, book called Good to Great. And I want you to notice his language because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says, anybody, especially a business owner, who wants to make sure their business lasts and moves into the future, has good customer service and quality products and all that stuff, you must maintain an unwavering faith regardless of the difficulties and at the very same time have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So we expect when you come here to hear truth because it's elevated and the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. 
We expect you, as you're sorting and working through your faith, to say, I have to come here and open and be honest before God and worship. At the same time, I'm confronting the brutal facts of my life, my reality, whatever they may be. That is the kind of worship that God is looking for. This is what Jesus was getting at later on in John chapter 8 when he said, if you hold to my teaching, my teaching, Jesus' teaching, you are really my disciples. Why? Because I teach you truth and you will know this truth and it's this truth that will set you free. So when Jesus walked the earth, this idea of truth, this word, it was synonymous with reality. They were one and the same thing. Jesus could have just as said, John could have recorded Jesus as saying, you'll know reality and reality will set you free because you're being open and honest before God. He seeks those kind of worshipers and he will meet you in your reality. That's what's going on with the woman at the well. As the story goes on though, Jesus has this way of wrapping truth in love so that we, when we unwrap truth, we can buy into it. We can trust it and live by faith in it. So John chapter four, the story goes on. So this woman hears this news. This guy just laid out my, laid out all my dirty laundry. He knows about me. And if I love this story for no other reason, I can read through it just to get to this verse. So this woman leaves her water jar. She goes back to the town and she says to the people, you gotta come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I mean, if I'm up here preaching and I rub up against some stuff that's going on in your life, is your first inclination to leave here and go call your mom or your best friend and say, oh my goodness, they just said all the junk going on in my life and I can't wait to tell you, you've got to come next week so maybe they can expose some stuff going on in your life. Is, is that really how it goes down? But that's what happens here. And notice, Jesus didn't tell her everything. He just skimmed the surface. I think why she says this is because he really captured what was going on. Yeah, you've had a handful of husbands, but let's talk about the reality behind that. What's really going on? He has this beautiful way of being able to speak the truth and wrap it in love so that we know how to receive it. It's like he was a good Jewish student knew his Hebrew Bible well. I would almost suggest that he's referencing Proverbs 12, verse 18. And he knows in the back of his mind that reckless words pierce like a sword. And maybe you've been guilty of sending them. I know I have. Michelle and I had a little tiff a few days ago. And I think my words were a little reckless. And I could just see it slice through her personhood and devalue and disrespect her. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's like Jesus got that. He can talk about truth because he wraps it in love. He knows that used wisely or wrapped in love, that truth can trigger understanding about yourself. It can trigger understanding about God. It can really get to the point that you get you to the point 
so that you can move forward in reality. He understands that truth possesses this inherent nature to heal a bruised and broken heart. I hope we get that too so that we never go all caps on someone. They've got to pay. Have you heard of the word adulting? Is that in your vocabulary? Adulting? Apparently it come on the scene around 2008, 2009, but in 2016, it hit the Twitter scene and jumped by usage 700% adulting. And it's basically this idea, not in an insultful way, but more of the younger generation. It's where they start to do things that adults in prior generations did. And maybe they did with ease or more of a natural way. It was just part of the ebb and flow of life or maturing. Uh, like getting married or buying a home or paying off debt or settling into a career. Adulting. Uh, this book, have you noticed the title? How to Become a Grown-Up in 535 Easy-ish Steps. Adulting. No? Haven't heard of it? What about twinning? Have you heard of twinning? Uh, one of two things happens. It's where you and someone else at the same moment, you both speak the same word or phrase or reference someone or something. Or maybe both of you have a brilliant genius thought at the same time. Or you show up to work and just so happens your buddy and you, you're dressed identically. Hashtag twinning. No? Let me introduce you to one more. Truthing. Anybody heard of this one? Probably not. Truthing. This is the literal language behind Ephesians chapter four, where it encompasses speaking truth, but wrapping it in love. Ephesians four, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Christ. Truthing, truthing. You and I want to be truthing all of the time. This idea where we can speak truth into someone's life. Help them see and identify their reality. Look below the surface. Look beyond the appearance. Because when we come in here at this building, I know we put on our best and brightest. And that's not a knock, but it's what we do. And sometimes stuff can be going on below the surface, behind the appearance. Here we want to come open and honest before God and worship Him. And we want to guarantee that you will have truth elevated, but it will always be wrapped in love. And when that happens, notice how this story continues. I think it's really fitting what happens next. This is the end of, this, of that little section. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them too. And he stayed two more days. And because of his words, truth wrapped in love, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, hey, we no longer believe because of what you said. We've heard for ourselves. He's spoke reality. He's spoken truth. He's laid out our laundry in a way to where we can't deny it anymore. And he seems to be able to offer us something no one else can. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now this may be going on in some of your minds and I think it's beautifully written. They're rubbing up against faith. They're able to experience this for themselves and maybe you're experiencing for yourself this morning and you believe 
or over the past few months, you've been buying into this idea of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and church and the Bible and all this stuff. And you're forming that belief. And that's where this story leaves off. They believe. But John doesn't record what the trust looks like. They believe. But what happens tomorrow when they start living this out? Maybe that's fitting for us this morning because you've got the belief You've got the buy-in, and maybe it's closer to 100% than 50%, but you've got the buy-in. You've got some beliefs that are really near and dear to your heart. And what does trust look like tomorrow when you, li- when you live this out and you start forging faith? And maybe, maybe you're destroying kingdoms, shutting the mouths of lions, or maybe you're being tortured or mistreated and it's not what you thought it was going to be faith moves you forward regardless you believe and you trust so I'm, sta- I'm standing there kind of in shock with this $100 bill and thinking about what I'm going to do with it or if I should give it back pass it on pass it forward how many cups of coffee this could buy just all these things running through my mind and this text hits me just how Jesus was so much more than the Jews and Samaritans fault. Neither one of them understood immediately that he was the savior of the world. It wasn't about their style of worship. It was about them coming before this great God, open and honest. I mean, this guy slid that gift my way and I had to learn how to kind of receive it. It was a little awkward. And maybe God's sliding his hand your way and there's something you're supposed to receive this morning. Was it hard for you? Maybe there's some truth that's been conveyed or some truth that you've been wrestling with for a while. Don't shy away from that. So we stand and sing here in a few moments and we pray and we engage God Engage him in full reality. Even the most difficult things that you've brought here this morning, bring your entire self so that you do not miss the heart of God. You know, in our family, we've got a couple of traditions. On Mother and Father's Day, we let the kids decide if there's any gifts given to the mom or dad. The kids get to decide because it'll reflect their relationship between parent and child. But if it's the birthday, then whoever's birthday it is, they get to decide. They get to choose what they want, what they want to eat, what gift they get, if anybody gives them a gift and all that stuff. On the birthday of Jesus, his birthday, he gets to choose. Why was he even born? When you look at faith, it's easy to go straight to Luke 1, Matthew 1, those initial stories. But the real gift of faith says, okay, I believe this. And I trust it regardless of what it means. I will live it out. And I believe it to the full. John 12. On his birthday, what he wants is not to judge this world, but to save it. And he can only save you if you define your reality and you come before him in all truthfulness of who you are. Father, we love you. And we know you love us because of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for showing us that faith is following through with you, regardless of whether it's a high moment or a low moment in life. 
We believe in you and we want to trust you and live out who you are to us. Father, thank you for inviting us to be truthful with you on our behalf, our own behalf. We don't have to hide or run. We can be fully present in this moment, open and honest before you. You're seeking that. You are seeking worshipers who will worship you in spirit and truth. May we honor that right now. And if there's any of us who need to experience the healing that only you can bring, where you define us by our faith in you, not our past, may today be the day that we realize you're so much more than who we initially thought. Jesus Christ really is the Savior of the world. In his name we pray, amen.